Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelhati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Sarah Sunbush and Lauren Prather about their book, Monitors and Meddlers, How Foreign Actors Influenced Local Trust in Elections, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Sarah and Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks so much Thanks for, having, for having us. So I wonder if we could begin the interview with uh, you just telling us a little bit about yourselves. So Sarah, why don't we start with you? Hi, yeah, um, I'm Sarah Bush. I'm an associate professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, I've been interested for in a long time in it, how international actors try to promote democracy around the world and sometimes fail. Uh, and I'm also doing research on gender and politics and the politics of climate change. And hi, I'm Lauren Prather. I'm an associate professor at UC San Diego in the School of Global Policy and Strategy. I do work largely on public opinion and political behavior as it relates to international relations. So I'm interested in both how international relations and foreign actors affect public opinion about domestic politics, including elections, like we study in this book. And then we um, also look at how citizens form their attitudes about their country's foreign policies. Wonderful. Uh, so I wanted to uh, just start by asking you how you came to write this book, Monitors and Meddlers. Yes. So the idea for the book actually started over a dinner, if you can believe that, a long time ago um, when Lauren and I were at a workshop at Yale University uh, that was on the subject of election integrity. And uh, at the time, I had just finished my PhD and was doing a postdoc uh, at Harvard, and Lauren was about halfway through uh, graduate school at Stanford. And we found ourselves seated next to each other at dinner, and we were talking about how international election observers, which were kind of a key subject of the workshop that we were attending, how they seemed to want to influence public attitudes uh, and, and shape public trust in elections, hopefully in a positive way, you know, um, contributing to trust when warranted for clean elections, um, but also telling the public when elections aren't credible and maybe they shouldn't be so trusting in the results. And so we were talking about how this seemed to be a key thing that election observers wanted to do, but that no one had really studied it. And as Lauren just said during the introduction, she uh, was, you know, was and is an expert on public opinion. And I was very interested in democracy promotion and groups like election observers. And so we just kind of um, kept the conversation going uh, after the workshop and thought, you know, really this was a research gap and we needed to find funding to do some work to understand how international actors influence public trust. And over time, and perhaps a little bit in response to, to current events and things like what happened in the U.S. election in 2016, we came to think it would also be very interesting to widen the scope from looking just at election observers to other types of foreign influences on election, like um, you know countries that are trying to intervene in elections in kind of nefarious ways. And does that cause people to lose trust in elections? And so that's kind of how the idea for the book was uh, started. And then, of course, um, as is often the case with research, it took a while to get funding. It took a while to do all of our surveys. Um, the project encompasses uh, research in um, kind of a very diverse set of countries uh, with case studies on Tunisia um, and its elections that were held after the Arab Spring there in 2014. It encompasses research that we've done in um, many different elections in the U.S. starting in 2016. Um, and it also encompasses research that we conducted in 2018 in Georgia, which is a post-Soviet country that is kind of a stable 
competitive authoritarian regime or partial democracy, depending on your perspective. Um, and and so, you know, it, 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 the the book kind of kept us busy for the for about a decade, conducting these surveys in different countries and. You know, ultimately, the the book shows how outside interventions do shape citizens' trust in their country's elections in significant ways, um, but that the effects are not always straightforward. They depend in critical ways on who is the outside actor, you know, so which organization is doing election observation, which country is feared to be meddling in an election. Um, so the outside actor needs to be thought of by the public as capable and um, willing, you know, to, to, to influence the election. And I'm sure later in the conversation, we'll get into some of the ways that the, the countries and organizations that the public thinks are really influential are not always the same as you might guess, uh, as a, as a scholar or analyst. Um, and the book also looks at the ways that foreign actors effects depend on whether an individual supports the winning party in an election or the losing party in an election. Um, so, so uh, you know, that's kind of where the book started and then where it ended up going. And I think part of the reason why Lauren and I both found this to be such an interesting project to work on for, for a period of time is that I think public trust in elections really matters. Um, you know, so there's a lot of research that shows that whether people trust an election shapes whether they decide to turn out to vote in an election. And then, um, you know, when people lack trust in elections, sometimes this has led to really large scale post-election protests. I think the most well-known of which are the countries that were involved in the color revolutions where people took to the streets after international monitors called out elections that were deeply flawed. Um, and so for that reason, public trust in election can really shape countries' patterns in terms of whether they become or remain democracies, whether they have stability, whether they experience violence. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's part of what motivated us to do the research um, and why we found it so interesting for, for all these years. Thank you, Sarah. That was uh, very helpful, and I think you really helped drive home sort of the the significance, right, of the of the core question that you ask in this book. Which, um, sort of, to to paraphrase what you just said, um, as I understand it, the book is trying to explain how foreign actors are shaping perception, public perceptions of the credibility of elections. Um, and to do this, you develop what you call a theory of the citizen. Uh, can I ask you to explain this theoretical argument for us? Yeah, um, this is Lauren. I'd be happy to step in and, and talk a little bit about our theory. So there are sort of two classes of explanations. Uh, so we build on research on electoral trust um, that has primarily looked at um, domestic politics explanations for why individuals would trust elections. So you can think of these classes of explanations as encompassing sort of electoral institutions. So individuals are more likely to trust elections if they think the electoral playing field is fair, right, and even. Um, so things like strict campaign finance rules, um, proportional uh, representation, these kinds of structures encourage individuals to be more trusting of elections. Um, this has been shown in comparative politics research as well as in um, research within individual countries. Um, and then there's a second finding um, that is perhaps even more robust than the electoral institutions argument, which is an argument about vote choice. Um, and there's a really strong and persistent finding across countries um, that's called the winner-loser gap. And it's essentially that winners are much more likely to have trust in elections than losers are. Um, and what's interesting about these two explanations is they are sort of associated with two types of goals that citizens might have in mind when they receive information about elections. And one goal you can think of is that citizens have an interest in having an accurate opinion about the election. Um, so they may want to receive information about the quality of the election and update uh, according to these accuracy goals. So if they receive information that, the, that there was fraud, they update in a negative direction. If they receive information that the election had high integrity, then they receive, then they update in a positive way. 
Um, so this would be um, a motivation around sort of having an accurate opinion about the election. But on the other hand, we know individuals also have motivational or directional goals or partisan goals, right? Um, so when they receive information about an election or any subject matter, really, um, they integrate that information with some sort of motivational um, uh, information processing. So in, in terms of elections, we can think of um, very strong um, incentives to want to support the party or the candidate that you vote for. And so the information you receive about the election might be filtered through that partisan support. And so if your candidate wins and you hear the election was bad, you might ignore that information because it's inconsistent with what you would hope to hear about the election, especially given that your candidate won. Um, on the flip side, right, if you were supporting a losing candidate and you're given information that the election was great, you might ignore that information because you that in information is inconsistent with um, what you observed in the election, which was your candidate losing. So we really take on board these um, uh, directional and um, informational or accuracy goals um, as a part of our individual level theory about um, elections and how foreign actors can influence them. So we think about foreign actors influence as being a piece of information individuals can receive about an election. And we think that individuals might update in response to this information because information about foreign actors can signal something about the quality of the election. So for election observers, for example, um, they are required in most cases to be invited by a country's government. So an incumbent has to invite an election monitor organization to the election. So when individuals hear this piece of information that a country's government has invited an international observer group to the election, this might provide information on two dimensions. So one, individuals might have uncertainty about whether their candidates are likely to commit fraud or the incumbent is likely to commit fraud. But if the incumbent is inviting an outside group to observe the election, this might signal to individuals that they should be more trusting in their incumbent government. Because why would they invite an election observer if they intended to commit fraud? So there could be a signal about the candidate's type, that they're more a democracy type um, than I previously thought now that I've learned about this uh, invitation. Um, but even if the signal about the candidate is not strong, individuals might still believe that fraud is less likely to occur if observers are at the election. So I could still think the candidates are the cheating type, but believe that cheating is less likely because observers are gonna be stationed around uh, the country at polling stations, and therefore um, candidates or parties are less likely to commit fraud. So we think that monitors' presence might cause individuals to update, again, if they are pursuing accuracy goals, uh, might update in a positive direction, that individuals might think their election is more likely to be credible if election observers are present. Um, there's a second source of information that comes from election observers, which is contained in their reports. So election observers issue evaluations of elections after those elections occur. Um, and those election, uh, those election reports can be generally um, categorized as positive or negative. And we exploit that in our research design, which we'll talk about later. Um, so that's another source of information. So after an election, individuals could update their belief about elections based on what they hear from observers' reports. So if an observer criticizes an election, individuals may incorporate that information into their opinions about the election. On the other hand, um, if they issue a positive evaluation, it might cause individuals to grow more trusting. Um, so as, I, as Sarah said, we started out kind of building this theory around election observers, but also thought that we could extend the theory to cover election meddling as well um, and, and use some of the same theoretical um, principles to explain how citizens might react to information about meddling. And so the same thing occurs, right? So if, uh, if a foreign country meddles in, a, in an election, um, citizens may believe that that occurred with the invitation of the incumbent party. 
And if so, that could signal to uh, to citizens that those incumbents are are cheating because meddling is sort of a form of cheating, um, but may also commit other types of fraud at the election. So so learning about meddling could indicate that um, the incumbent is the the cheating type. And then similarly, right, that other dimension of the electoral playing field, hearing information about meddling could indicate to citizens that the electoral playing field is going to be unfair and therefore the the citizens may grow to be less trusting of the election. Um, so, so that's the basic theory of the citizen. We think about these, um, these uh, twin goals the citizens have, these informational and accuracy goals. Um, and we also think about the signals that foreign actors um, presence and reports send to citizens about the quality of their elections. Um, now, we can go on, as we will get to in the later chapters, about how that theory is sort of conditioned by the identity of the, the foreign actor, as well as by individuals' vote choice. And individuals' vote choice, um, we can really think about as um, honing in on those partisan goals that I talked about and really using that framework to start to think about whether uh, signals from foreign actors are more likely to affect those who support the losing candidate or the winning candidate. But we can talk about that um, more when we get to that chapter. Thank you, Lauren. I think as listeners can tell, it's a very nuanced, uh, very sophisticated argument and also one that's very compelling. Um, so uh, I, I wanted to ask you next about uh, your research methods. Um, so Sarah's already mentioned that uh, you know you conducted research in multiple different countries, um, but could you tell us more about what sort of uh, what sort of data you collected and what kind of research you did to try to assess this theory and also to try to compare it with a conventional uh, and alternative explanations? Of course, this is Sarah again. So um, in our kind of thinking about what kind of research design to use for this study, I think we decided it was really important to pursue a survey-based research design. Some of the research that inspired us and shaped our thinking on this topic documents very interesting relationships between, for example, the criticism offered by international election observers and the likelihood of post-election protests or the extent of meddling by foreign actors in an election and then that country's democratic trajectory. And it's often the case that research on these topics argues, um, at least in part, that these effects have to do with the ways that foreign actors shape the citizen um, in, in the, you know, in the kind of conventional wisdom that Lauren articulated a moment ago. Um, but but they support this argument by looking at the relationship between, you know, the presence or reports of election observers or the presence and extent of meddling and then some kind of country level outcome. But the argument is at the level of the citizen. And we thought it was important to really go out there and test that with then citizen level data. Um, because, for example, it could be the case that, um, you know, criticism of an election by international monitors is correlated with pro post-election protests because, um, you know, these criticisms are more likely when a country is being paid attention to by the international community when it's a high-profile case. Um, and that's why people turn out to protest after the election, you know, because they think they've got the attention of the international community, um, not because they've transformed their beliefs about whether an election is credible or not. So, so we kind of need to go and ask them. Um, and although there's a lot of great surveys, like the World Values Survey, which we draw on extensively in the book that do query people about whether they trust their country's elections and think that the elections reflect the will of the people. Um, the kind of uh, downside of some of these approaches, like in the World Values Survey, is that they don't ask people their attitudes right around elections, which is when people's minds might be being changed, um, uh, you know, right when they learn something from an election observer, for example, um, and, and before all of the post-election dynamics take hold. Um, so we wanted to do surveys ourselves right around elections, and we decided 
um, as we were kind of developing the idea for these surveys, that we should also adopt an experimental approach. Um, and, and by this, we mean that within our surveys, we would randomly select certain groups of respondents to receive information about some facet of foreign actors' involvement in their elections. And we always tried to be truthful in the information that we provided, which was important for which cases we selected for the study, which I can talk about in a moment. Um, and we thought that kind of by randomly giving people information about foreign actors' um, involvement in their election, that this would address another challenge with studying the topic uh, in past research, which is that you know, which countries get monitored by international groups, which co countries' elections get selected for some sort of uh, um, involvement by uh, interferers, meddlers, um, you know, those are not decisions that get made at random. Often countries are selected deliberately because they're on a democratizing trajectory um, in the case of election observation, or maybe because um, uh, meddlers think that that's an election where they can really swing things their way. And so, so for this reason, finding a correlation between some sort of foreign actors' involvement and individuals' trust in elections may be more because of a correlation and not a causation. And so um, we wanted to randomly select respondents in our survey and prime them with information about um, some facet of foreign actors' involvement to try to better identify that relationship. Um, and there's pros and cons of, of this research design, um, but we thought on balance this made sense for answering the question that, that we were most interested in. Um, you know, then a next kind of decision for our methodology was which cases to focus on. And as I already mentioned, we decided to choose a very diverse set of cases in terms of their regime types. And all of the countries in our study, Tunisia, the U.S., and Georgia, um, have experienced both um, election monitoring at their recent elections and to either a greater or lesser extent, some worries or experiences about foreign meddling and interference. Um, but because they're at different levels of democracy, they give us a chance to see how foreign actors might shape trust in environments that are maybe more or less certain. Um, Tunisia, for example, at the time of our research was a transitional country coming out of the period after its revolution as part of the Arab Spring. And because it was holding regular elections when we conducted our research for the first time, that kind of environment was hypothesized to be um, a kind of best case scenario, or most likely, I should say, scenario for having foreign actors influence trust. Because, you know, since it's you know, elections are that are free and fair, we're in kind of a new phenomenon. People might have really been uncertain about, you know, how how much integrity the elections would have. By contrast, the U.S. is kind of a uh, you know longstanding democracy, um, though not perfect, as no country is. Georgia, as a more kind of uh, stable um, country in between full democracy and full autocracy, those were more certain electoral environments, um, even though they had very different levels of democracy. And so maybe were harder tests to see if foreign actors would influence trust. So, um, so we hoped that by selecting this diverse set of countries, we could offer a fairly general test of our theory, even though necessarily we could only focus on a few cases, kind of given the resources involved with conducting original surveys. Thank you. Um, so jumping into the uh, empirics a little bit more, um, and I, I really appreciated that the book is, is structured thematically rather than sort of focusing on each country case uh, sequentially. Um, so uh, your first empirical step is uh, testing uh, the theory with regards to election monitoring. Um, so what do you find there? So it was important to us to, uh, in our theory, think about both kind of the average effects. So on average, across all of the individuals that we surveyed uh, that got the different treatment uh, pieces of information that, that Sarah mentioned, um, what were the average effects of learning about both the presence of monitors on the one hand and the evaluations that monitors gave of the election on the other hand? 
So our later empirical chapters will delve into the conditional treatment effects. So the treatment effects conditional on who the actor is um, and conditional on who the respondent voted for. But this chapter is really devoted to that average treatment effects, just trying to understand on average, do monitors presence in their reports affect trust in elections. Um, and I wanted to build on something that Sarah said, which was that it was important for us to give truthful information. And, and I just wanna reiterate that both for the monitoring and the meddling cases, because um, we're hypothesizing that election trust is this incredibly important outcome for voting, for protest and potentially violence. And so we didn't wanna be in a position where we were giving anyone information that would affect their trust that was not truthful about the context of the election. Um, so that was really important to us as we built our informational treatment. And so each country uh, case received slightly different pieces of information that was built to the context of that election. So in terms of the informational treatments about monitors, uh, we built in for the presence uh, experiments, we built in a randomization around the actor's identity. But when we look in this chapter at the average effects, we collapse across all of those um, informational treatments, the, the different identities of the actors. Um, so for the presence treatments, we gave information about what monitors were doing at each country's elections. We told people that Monitors would be present at polling stations. They would be evaluate. They would be assessing the election for um, uh, its adherence to international and domestic law. Um, basic things that election monitors do. So we wanted to give people a sense of what not just the monitors were there, but also what is the purpose of election monitoring. Um, and those treatments were relatively stable across the three cases and the different elections that we studied within those cases. Um, but the, like I said, the identity was different in, in, the, in the different cases because there were different international monitors at each of these um, countries' elections. So on average, we find that the presence of monitors um, increases electoral trust, but only marginally and in many cases, not significantly. And again, we go on in later chapters to show why this is, that not every monitor, not every foreign actor is going to be viewed the same. Um, some people think that monitors are not very capable of detecting fraud, and if so, why would they affect individuals' trust? Or they may think that monitors are biased, and so their presence at elections may not increase trust because it doesn't really signal anything about the, the candidate or about the fairness of the electoral playing field. And so we think this um, null effect essentially makes sense, right? On average, the presence of monitors is not doing much to change um, individuals' views about elections. Now, it might also be the case, the third dynamic, and we talk about this a little bit too, is that some of our country cases are also environments where individuals are very certain about the quality of their elections. Um, so this is another key feature of our research design is to show in cases where individuals have priors about the quality of their elections and they're very certain about those opinions, learning about the presence of election monitors may not actually change their minds that much. Um, so that's another um, element. And we, we find that, for example, in the country of Georgia, election monitors and to a certain extent election meddlers don't have very large effects in, in any of our studies, um, precisely because this was an incredibly certain environment. People were very certain that their elections were of middling quality, if you will. Um, and then the second thing that we, we show in this chapter um, is, is the effect of monitors reports. And here, I just wanna go into a bit of detail about the, again, the informational treatments that individuals received. So in each of these country cases, we waited a few days. I should mention the presence uh, experiments occurred in the pre-election uh, surveys that we did. Um, and for the most part, the reports survey, uh, reports experiments occurred after. 
And this makes sense because we could only develop our informational treatments after election monitors had issued their reports. Um, again, because we were striving for accuracy um, and truthfulness in our treatments, uh, we actually drew um, language from election monitors' preliminary evaluations of the elections we studied and inserted that into our informational treatment so that individuals actually got, um, in some cases, the exact wording that monitors were using to, to either criticize or um, uh, affirm a country's election. Uh, and those were really the two treatments that we were comparing. We were comparing uh, an informational treatment where we gave individuals information about the positive things that monitors said in their reports. And then some individuals were randomly selected to receive the criticisms that monitors gave. And this would help us understand if monitors were, were only making positive statements about elections, would this increase individuals' trust? On the flip side, if uh, monitors were making only sort of negative statements about the elections, would this decrease trust? And we do find here that reports on average do make a difference. Again, the country of um, Georgia is, is a slightly unusual case, um, which we can talk about um, we want to go into more detail there, but um, on average, there's a slight positive effect on trust uh, when individuals read the positive statements that observers made, and there's a slight negative uh, or, or decrease in trust when respondents read about the negative statements that monitors made. Um, so on average here, we do see a little bit more of a treatment effect for monitors evaluations, um, and this also sort of makes sense. The the signal that monitors' presence gives is probably not quite as strong as the signal that their reports give when they're actually making statements and judgments about the election. Um, but as I said, we will, um, in the later chapters, we go on to examine um, whether or not these treatment effects are different when we consider different uh, monitors' uh, identities and how that interacts with indiv individuals' vote choice. Absolutely. And we'll get to that uh, in uh, in just a bit. But first, I wanted to ask you about um, your results on election meddling, which is um, sort of the next empirical step that you uh, that you take in this book. Um, so what do those results look like on election meddling? Yes. Um, so I think that the headline finding is from our chapter about the overall or average effects of election meddling on trust is quite similar to the headline finding about election monitors, which is to say that there are pretty small or um, limited, you know, or, or, or non-existent in some cases effects um, uh, uh, from our experiments for the general effect of election meddling on trust. Um, I should say, you know, what is it that we mean in this study by election meddling? And here we draw on really, um, great recent research by Dove Levin and others to conceptualize this as when a foreign actor is deliberately trying to undermine the fairness of another country's election by tilting the election playing field in favor of a specific candidate or party. Um, and many people have theorized that for Russia, um, in terms of its um, uh, recent electoral interventions um, in the US, as well as in other countries in its neighborhood, that the goal is to damage individuals' trust in their elections and maybe trust in democratic institutions institutions more broadly. Um, we asked questions in our surveys that gauged people's perceptions about the extent of foreign influence as well, including sort of negative foreign influences on, on their elections. And one finding that we have across the surveys is that people think there's a lot of foreign influence on their elections and people don't overwhelmingly perceive this influence as negative, but in many cases they do. And when people think that foreign actors are influencing their elections in negative ways, they think that their elections are less credible. So there's kind of a correlational finding that supports the intuition that um, meddling might have a negative effect. But then when we proceeded to the experimental research design, which followed kind of similar principles that Lauren articulated for the election monitoring experiments of trying to be um, truthful uh, and um, you know, use a similar battery of questions about people's 
perceptions of election credibility. Here we found um, much more muted effects. So in the U.S., we conducted experiments that informed people about uh, credible concerns about meddling in 2018 and 2020 from the intelligence community, as well as information that suggested maybe meddling wouldn't be so bad. So we tried to sort of truthfully provide different um, pieces of information in here. And when we primed people with information about the threat of meddling, we didn't find that they lost trust, although actually information that election meddling was sort of being detected by the intelligence community and um, responded to that enhanced people's trust. So so it was information about the absence of meddling that helped rather than information about the presence of meddling that hurt. Um, We also conducted um, some experiments on this topic in Georgia and generally found that that the information didn't have a strong overall effect. Although when we asked people to consider a hypothetical election in the future, uh, and we told them that meddling uh, would be happening there, in that case, people's trust did decline. Um, But it seems that in a hypothetical situation where people might have a lot of uncertainty, people react differently to the threat of meddling than they do in the real world where, um, you know, as as we've already talked about and we'll get into in the, the next two chapters, uh, you know, it, things really depend on who's doing the meddling and, you know, what is happening in the election in terms of who's going to win and what party do I as an individual support. So I think the findings in this chapter that there are fairly muted negative effects of meddling, at least in our experiments on people's trust, offer some explanation for why in a lot of countries, we don't see um, kind of a robust response to the threat of meddling. Um, uh, you know that you know, and and that's a complex uh, question. Um, but but you know, in general, that there's not a stronger public reaction on average to information about meddling that's negative, and that people may be perceiving this in quite a partisan way might explain why um, there's not greater enthusiasm and political action to try to respond to it. So I think that the kind of null findings that are dominate this chapter kind of give us some insight into why that's going on in the policy space. Thank you. So now I wanted to ask you about this question of who, who's doing the uh, intervening, right? Um, so um, what happens when you look at the identity of the intervener? How does that shape uh, the effects of foreign intervention? So this was uh, front of mind for us because, again, when we started this work on election monitoring, we were well aware of previous work um, by scholars such as Judith Kelly that really was tackling this question of complexity in the election monitoring space. So uh, since election monitoring uh, grew and has become a norm, many actors have entered this space. And in some cases, actors that you would be surprised to hear are doing monitoring, like the Arab League, which is um, a regional organization made up of primarily authoritarian regimes that might have no business doing election monitoring uh, in countries, right? Or or might be doing election monitoring for other reasons. And and this is some future work, um, or I guess current future to this book project, but current work now, um, where we are studying the effects of these organizations that are made up primarily of authoritarian actors, but are nevertheless doing election monitoring. So we can talk about that later as well. But we were aware of the complexity in this space and also aware that countries are inviting multiple election monitors to their elections. And so the question for us was whether the actor's identity, um, the foreign actor's identity would condition the effects uh, that we were hypothesizing that would influence trust in elections. Um, And we really saw two characteristics of foreign actors as being important. The first was the capability of the actors. So again, if we can think back to that signaling theory that the invitation of election monitors might signal that either the government is uh, the more democratic type, right? Because why would you invite observers uh, if you intended to cheat? Or that the incumbent is still kind of the cheating type, but is less likely uh, to do it because they might get caught um, by the election observers. And to us, though, we really thought 
Well, that signaling um, only makes sense or is only really going to be a strong signal if individuals believe that the monitors that are being invited are capable of detecting and deterring fraud. Um, so if an incumbent is inviting a monitoring group that has no capacity to detect and deter fraud, then this signal is not going to be very strong about the incumbent's type, um, or it might even go the other direction, right? Um, if individuals believe that they're inviting observers that are likely to just rubber stamp the election, they might actually view this in a negative light and a signal of the election's untrustworthiness. Um, so capability is, is one dimension. And then the second dimension is bias. And so Actually, um, this maybe was the first uh, characteristic that came to mind to us because election monitors all over the world are criticized in some capacity by some actor somewhere, either in domestic politics or international politics, of being biased. Um, and so in theory, election observers, uh, and in many cases they are neutral, right? They go, they observe the process, they comment on what worked, what didn't, and then they, and then they leave. Um, but in some cases, individuals believe that monitors are not um, making evaluations of elections uh, in a neutral capacity, but rather in a capacity that's meant to help one side or the other. Um, and it's unfortunate that in some cases, monitors themselves have sort of um, strayed at times or or lessened the criticism in their reports of, of elections of low quality um, with good intentions in some cases because they want to mitigate violence um, and they do want to uh, promote uh, the right steps that these governments are taking. But in some cases, these somewhat watered down reports then are criticized as being biased. And so, again, the idea would be that if incumbents are inviting monitors that are likely to just side with them that are biased, um, then that signal about either the candidate's type or the quality of the election is not going to be very strong. And so the, the, the intervener's identity is going to matter. So how did we study this? Well, in some cases, for that pre-election experiment about the uh, presence of election monitors, we randomly varied which organization we told individuals was at the election. Um, and so in Tunisia, we had five different treatments, one of which was the Arab League, um, but also elect uh, election monitors from the United States, from the EU, from the African Union. Um, and then we also looked at domestic Tunisian observers, because that's another dimension of election observation that we don't go into much in this book, but is also um, starting to develop and become a norm, which is to have local observers at elections. Um, so in this case, we randomized the identity of the monitors, and then we asked after the fact, after they read that information, how capable and unbiased they thought those monitors were. Um, and then in the United States, um, and also um, uh, across the many elections in the U.S. that we studied, instead of asking about different types of monitors. Instead, we gave information that either highlighted the monitors that we told them about their capabilities or their bias or both, okay? And really for our theory to hold, we, we show that you need to have both characteristics. You need to be seen as both capable and unbiased. And so what our findings show is that when we either told people that the monitors were both capable and unbiased, or if people judge the monitors that they heard to be both capable and unbiased, then that is where we saw the largest effects of monitors present. So capable and unbiased monitors were the ones that, that increased trust in the election the most. Um, and we go a little bit more into depth in this chapter about the case of Tunisia because it highlights a really interesting dynamic, which is that the monitors that you might have thought or the international community might have thought as being the most capable and the least biased, maybe those monitors from the United States or the EU, which have a long history of high quality monitoring, um, were actually viewed as capable, but viewed as biased. Um, and so I think this is a really important um, finding for the international community. Um, and instead, the monitoring group that was seen as the most capable and least biased was the Arab League. And we can think about 
that potentially being the case because um, Arab League monitors are likely to know the, the cultural context and likely to know the language. Other monitoring groups also try to hire individuals that are that are local to these contexts and have the language skills, but that may not be as widely publicized. Um, but the Arab League uh, individuals may have thought that they would be quite capable given their regional location and also less biased compared to Western actors that have a history of intervention in the region that um, individuals might view as being one-sided. Um, so, so this regional organization was really the one that was viewed as the most capable and least biased and, and therefore had the greatest effect um, in a positive direction on monitor on individuals' trust in the election. Um, we applied that same theory to meddling. Um, we, of course, meddling is always going to be biased. That's the whole point of meddling is to support one candidate in an election over another. So we really focused in for our meddling experiments on the capability question. And here we randomized for the United States um, what types uh, or what actors were um, thought to be meddling in the election. Again, truthfully, the U.S. intelligence agency had identified Russia, China and Iran as potential meddlers around the elections we studied. Um, but it was really only Russia that was viewed as having um, the strongest capabilities to influence U.S. elections. And I think because we were studying elections in 2018 and 2020, this was obviously influenced by the experience in 2016. Um, but nevertheless, when we asked individuals after they read about the potential for either Russia, China, or Iran meddling in the election, individuals who thought any of those actors were capable of influencing the election they had less trust in the election than those who thought those actors were less capable of influencing the election. So there again, we see for election meddling, the characteristics of the actor really matter. Um, and those characteristics can vary quite a lot across the different potential um, influencers. Um, so again, Russia was viewed as quite capable, but China and Iran um, less so. So, um, so this chapter is really honing in on what it is about the foreign actors that make um, make them more influential on individuals' trust. Thank you. Uh, so um, you've already mentioned sort of the importance of individuals' vote choice. So I wanted to ask you about that set of findings. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. So um, I think as we've already mentioned during this session, there is a very clear finding across all of our surveys, as well as many other surveys that scholars have analyzed on electoral trust that indicate that people who support um, the candidate or party that wins an election tend to be more trusting in the election than people who support the losing candidate or party. Um, and that's, you know, the, the partisan differences don't stop there when it comes to our findings. Um, so, one of the important takeaways is that when people hear um, good news about election quality, but they support the losing candidate or party in an election, they don't become more trusting. So if election monitors in our experiment were told, if the election monitors were described to the respondents as having said something positive about election integrity, if you supported the losing party or side in the election, you don't become more confident in the election's credibility. Um, conversely, if you support the losing candidate or party and you hear some negative news, you downgrade your trust um, in, in many of our surveys. Um, and likewise, losers uh, in, in an election, we're more likely to believe that meddling occurred. So I think, you know, if you're listening to this uh, podcast from the U.S., you know, you might not be shocked by this because there's so much polarization that we have in the country right now. And, you know, we know that Republicans and Democrats often respond to information in really distinct ways. Um, but I think this is a super important lesson for people who are studying the effects of international interventions, um, including around elections, because, um, you know, I think that that 
that there have been some assumptions in that space that, well, if you have foreigners intervening in an election, people are not going to like that. There's going to be a backlash. People are going to feel very nationalistic about their elections being interfered with. Um, But I think our findings suggest a different perspective, which is that um, even blatant meddling in an elections um, doesn't inevitably provoke that kind of public backlash. Um, it's only some people who view an intervention like that negatively. Um, others might actually kind of tolerate such an intervention or even welcome it if they think it's just going to support, um, you know, the, 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 the candidate or the party that they like. Um, and so, so there's this potential for, foreign actors to widen the winner loser gap and to widen polarization by, you know, not really influencing the views of winners that much who overwhelmingly trust elections, but sometimes depressing the trust of, of losers, um, whether, uh, you know, that's the intervention in the form of meddling, or if that's, um, something more like credible election monitoring. So, so it's kind of a, a bit of a depressing perhaps, uh, uh, finding, but I think we may be talking soon about our kind of policy takeaways in more depth. And I think, you know, there are some ways that it's possible for, people who want to ensure that citizens have trust in an election when it's warranted can respond to this. Wonderful. So, uh, yes. So in the, the conclusion for the book is really, um, really insightful and sort of draws uh, out some various implications uh, of the argument and the findings. But I wanted to ask you specifically about the policy takeaways. Uh, so what what would you say are the policy implications of this book? Yeah, so maybe I can name a few and Sarah can can name the ones that I miss. Um, so I'll I'll start by saying, um, you know, since I, I talked about the the characteristics of monitors and meddlers chapter, uh, I'll start by um, you know, thinking about monitors um in these organizations and what they might take away from the book. And and one thing they might take away from the book, and this is definitely stuff that they are already doing, um, but we think maybe they could publicize more, which is um, these monitoring groups that really do um, invest a lot in their capabilities and do consider themselves to be be neutral, um, but maybe are not viewed that way by the publics where they observe elections. Um, could do more to actually promote themselves and promote these characteristics so that they do have the influence that they seek to have. So um, as I mentioned briefly, um, lots of times these observer groups do try to hire heads of missions, for example, that are um, that are local to the region, at least, that are, that are prominent members of those communities. Um, and doing more of this and publicizing who these heads of missions are could be one way to really enhance um, the individuals on the ground, their views about the capabilities um, and neutrality of these monitoring groups. Um, so we think that monitoring groups could really take on board um, the, the findings about monitors' characteristics. Um, you know, the second aspect of this um, it has to do with these lower quality monitoring groups. And, and so one of the clear kind of predictions and I think um, you know warnings for the democracy promotion community is that these regional organizations that may actually not intend to promote democracy and may actually have more um, support of authoritarian actors in mind when they go to these elections, they may actually have influence over individuals. Um, and I don't think this would come as a surprise to, to democracy promoters and, and the democracy promotion community, but I do think our book highlights the sort of unexpectedness of the influence of these regional organizations. And again, highlights the potential threat to democracy that these organizations have. And I'll just draw out that dynamic for a second, which is, um, something that, that Sarah and I are looking at in a different research project, which is to think about the rise of these so-called zombie monitoring organizations. And these are, um, in some cases, organizations that truly are zombies. They have no headquarters. Um, they rise from the dead for one election. Um, and they're simply going to these elections to rubber stamp 
the victory of the autocrat, right? Um, and, and in fact, there's a, a mimicry that's going on of high quality groups with the intent of influencing the domestic public to view the victory of the autocrat as legitimate. Um, and so this is um, concerning. And our book in that chapter about monitors characteristics where we show that the Arab League does influence Tunisian views about elections um, can be applied more widely to think about this phenomenon and its potential effects on democracy around the world that that citizens might not be aware that these groups truly have this this purpose of rubber stamping elections for autocrats and therefore might be influenced and um, view those victories as more legitimate and thus contribute to authoritarian stability. So, so we do think that um, our book has implications both for how high quality monitors can promote themselves, but also um, to take seriously this threat of low quality or zombie monitoring um, that, that's rising around the world. Um, and I'll just say one more thing about meddling because I don't want to leave meddling out. Um, which is to say, one of the, the findings that Sarah was just talking about with meddling was that winners, um, you know, no matter what you tell them about the negative effects of monitoring or the negative evaluations of monitors um, or the presence of, of meddling, their views about the election are not really um, growing more distrustful. But in reality, we might actually want winners to be more skeptical of their elections, especially when meddling has occurred. Um, and the reason we would want this is because we would want states to take steps towards protecting their elections from malign influence from foreign meddlers. Um, and if winners don't believe there was anything wrong with the election, they may be less likely to pass the kind of reforms that are necessary to protect elections from from future meddling. So we think this is a policy implication as well to think about how to get um, winners of elections to be more accepting of the idea of, of meddling or even accepting of the idea of um, uh, that observers uh, criticisms point out. Right. Because, again, if you supported the winning party, then by default, your party is now has the ability to make these reforms. But if winners aren't accepting that their elections need reforms, then we're less likely to see these reforms being made. And so I think that's that's a real policy implication as well. OK, what did I miss? I thought that was great. <laughs> I thought that was great. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, so, of course, you know, this book is the result of years of work and the resulting book is very impressive. It's very persuasive. It's very polished. Um, so I wondered if we could peek behind the curtain uh, for a minute. Um, and I wanted to ask you, were there any challenges that you faced uh, while you were researching or writing this book? I can speak a little bit to that. Um, so I think one of the biggest challenges that we faced and maybe some of the people listening to this can relate is that when we came up with a research question, we had this very ambitious vision of how we wanted to go about um, doing the research and, and trying to answer the research question. But doing our ambitious research plan required a lot of resources. Um, and as I mentioned at the start of the, the podcast, when we started the project, we were at a you know, pretty junior career stage and it, you know, it was hard to figure out how we could fund this. And I think that we got some lucky breaks along the way, but really we just had to be super, super persistent. Um, and we have been lucky to get um, a number of grants to support our research and the project, I think, really kicked off uh, when we were awarded a grant from the National Science Foundation. But even though we have been lucky to get a lot of funding to support the project. We have also been rejected from a lot of funding. Um, and so, you know, it, I think it was it was really hard and it meant that we had to make these tough decisions. Like I uh, spoke about earlier in the conversation about, you know, where could we do the, the, the research given research resource constraints. Um, and, you know, something that I um, have thought about after finishing the book. And it, the book also touches on this a little bit itself. It's sort of like, you know, what what would it have looked like if we had had infinite resources and been able to do this everywhere? And I think one 
thing that the book doesn't do is look at these dynamics in a truly authoritarian context, you know, an environment that's much less free than Georgia was in 2018 at the time of our research. And there's reasons why that a really authoritarian political environment was something that we excluded from the study, um, you know, including that it's hard to do research in such political environments. It's hard to do surveys, but it's certainly not impossible. So I think that that is the next frontier for this research agenda would be to do that. But, you know, you can only do so much uh, with with the, the time and the money that you have. And so we thought that looking at these countries at a range of levels of democracy would be a good starting point. Um, but but it was hard to find the funding. Um, and uh, I think it just meant just doggedly pursuing applications, not getting worried if we were turned away once or twice or even more um, and just keeping going. And eventually we made it work. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so uh, Lauren and Sarah, we I've taken up so much of your time. Uh, I just want to say that I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for having us. The book is Sarah Sunbush and Lauren Prather's Monitors and Meddlers, How Foreign Actors Influence Local Trust in Elections, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Thank you for listening.